welcome to episode number 11 of Popular Volcanics, a podcast about volcanoes and eruptions and magma, and today, uh, things that are not happening on the Earth, although we'll probably end up talking about the Earth to some large degree as well. It's an exciting episode. It's the sixth in this special series of volcanology basics that we've been recording during uh, the great hiatus here. It is sadly the last episode of the series on volcanology basics, uh, although we'll have some uh, more episodes coming up uh, to tackle other topics. But uh, today we're going to be talking about volcanism that isn't on Earth, so extraterrestrial volcanism. Uh, and as always, I'm Dr. Eric Clemetti from Denison University and Discover Magazine. And with me, as usual, is my co-host, Janine. Hi, I'm Janine. I'm at the Global Volcanism Program in Washington, D.C. Today, we have a special guest to, to talk about extraterrestrial volcanism. Uh, we're excited to have him. Uh, and I'll let uh, Dr. Jacob Richardson give us a little introduction. Hi, Eric. And hi, Janine. And thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for inviting me to Popular Volcanics. Uh, this is a great podcast. Uh, so I'm proud to be a part of it. Um, and yeah, my name's uh, Jacob Richardson, and I'm a planetary volcanologist uh, here at uh, the University of Maryland's Astronomy Department. And I work at uh, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center when we're open for business, not in a, in a sort of pandemic setting. So um, like you said, I study uh, volcanoes sort of in outer space, mostly uh, silicate volcanism. And what I mean by that is volcanism that uh, is some similar to the volcanoes that we see on Earth that are formed from uh, rocks with high amounts of silica um, that melt and, and form volcanoes. And we see these uh, volcanoes all around the inner solar system. And then even in, in different parts of the outer solar system, we see different kinds of uh, volcanoes being expressed through um, water, so cryovolcanism. You were saying, uh, as just as we were getting started, that you not only study volcanoes and other planets, but you use the Earth's volcanism as a guide as well. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm part of a, a really great team here at Goddard that uh, gets to go around the Earth and look at volcanoes to try to understand how did these volcanoes erupt and how did these volcanic deposits uh, get laid down over over time, geologic time, or, or uh, very recently, in order to understand how do volcanoes work um, elsewhere in the solar system. And the reason why we do this at NASA is kind of because it's a little cheaper to go to Flagstaff, Arizona, than it is to go to the moon every weekend. Isn't that a shame? <laughs> um, I don't really. Um, and that, that's a good point. Um, you know, I got questions in the past about, you know, why do people bother stuttering, studying volcanoes and other planets? And while I'm a more of a hazards person, so where people intersect with volcanoes, we can ask different questions that we might not have thought of when we're looking at planetary volcanoes. So there's a lot that we can learn about Earth's volcanism as well as planetary volcanism, looking at the different planets, including our own. Yeah, Jean, that's that's totally, um, I say that all the time. So there's one really good example that, um, that I was a part of for my uh, PhD and going into my uh, postdoc, which was that uh, one of the things that we were developing at my graduate school at University of South Florida was a model called the Volcanic Event Age Model. And we're still working on that a little bit. 
but we were trying to figure out what's the recurrence rate of, of volcanoes uh, on Earth from a hazards perspective. But one thing about Earth volcanoes is sometimes they're hard or expensive to come up with good dates for them, good ages for them. Uh, and it's hard to see all of the volcanoes because Earth has this really interesting problem that volcanoes erode over time. But because I look at volcanoes on Mars, I was able to look at every single volcano that erupted over the course of millions and millions of years. And we had a complete geologic record of a volcanic field there. So we were able to apply that model for the first time using this Mars data set. And that helped us understand how the, to use this model for uh, Earth volcanoes that pose a hazard like uh, now we're looking at Medicine Lake and and Lassen volcanoes in the Cascades to see what you know what's the cadence of their eruptions. So that's kind of uh, fascinating to think that it was easier to apply something like that to look at Martian volcanoes than uh, ones on Earth. But you're right, on Earth there's a lot of stuff that either destroys or covers up the evidence of volcanism, but on some of these other planets, especially Mars, that that record is is a lot more unbroken, you'd say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Mars and and maybe other planets, Mercury, the moon, they're kind of the only places where we can go and see rocks that are 3 billion years old uh, in vast landforms existing. So if we we look on, on Earth, we, uh, we really rely on people like you, Eric, who are petrologists to, to look at minerals that have survived three billion years of, of Earth, which is not very kind to rocks uh, compared to these other planets that don't have uh, forests and don't have um, people and don't have water. Um, or at least as much water. What got you into this direction of studying volcanoes? Did you know you wanted to study volcanoes for a long time, and in particular volcanoes off the planet, or is this kind of developed over your your academic career? Yeah, so my career in volcanology and planetary volcanology, it's definitely been a sort of circuitous path. I'm a geologist, so that means that when I went to college, I wasn't actually starting to study geology. Um, as I think almost every geologist I, I encounter, we all have some story about when we were a freshman and, and or sophomores at college, we were studying art or we were studying math or we didn't know what we wanted to study. And that was the same for me. I didn't take a geology course until uh, my second year in college. And then I realized, oh, I can do this and get money for it. I'm definitely doing this. I'm definitely studying, studying the earth. I can go outside uh, for a job. Uh, that sounded killer to me. And then uh, maybe somewhere in my junior year, I realized, oh, wow, you can do all of this stuff and on other planets. And I didn't really get into uh, looking at volcanoes until uh, I got a, I, I sort of randomly got an internship to look at volcanoes on Mars. And once I, I found that sort of into planetary geology, I never looked back. Uh, probably because turns out looking at volcanoes on Mars is super cool. Uh, and, and I never, I, I don't know, I didn't have any problems with that for sure. When you had made that connection between 
geology and then planetary geology. You know, I have some friends who who have followed similar paths to yours, but then were were stymied or at least frustrated by the idea that they would never visit their field area. Have you have you ever had those sorts of moments, or is it do you have enough connection with terrestrial earthly rocks that that doesn't uh, come into your mind too often. Yeah, I think because I get out into the field that really assuages that problem. Um, but yeah, I definitely uh, love getting out into the field. And I am always reminded when I'm doing science or when I'm doing research that Earth really is a planet. Uh, and uh, studying this, studying volcanoes on this planet is still planetary volcanism in a way. So uh, I feel connection that way. Uh, I also really like looking at volcanoes on other planets, but I don't know if I'd want to live there. Uh, here has better coffee. Um, and, and so I really like, I really like earth, uh, our sort of planet a. I'm totally with you on that. Yeah. <laughs> Glad to hear. I mean, that's an interesting point you bring up there. The idea that, um, we have to remember that earth is a planet too. Cause I know I fall into that trap sometimes is like, yes, we can talk about all these things going on on other planets and somehow that those processes are, are distinct from what's going on on earth. But really they're all just planets. Um, they might have different histories and different um, different structures that are are driving the geologic activity. Um, but yeah, Earth is just another planet. So if you were to pick some nice places on Earth that are like other planets in terms of the the styles of volcanism or the the land features, let's say from Mars or the Moon or something like that, what what were the sort of places that you think of? I think that the planetary community, the planetary geology community, has really identified. Uh, places like Iceland and Kilauea and Mauna Loa as really pristine habit, uh, pristine environments that are similar to uh, environments that we see on the surface of the moon and the surface of, of Mars. So uh, I study this one volcano uh, pretty commonly called Holofrun, which is a the flood lava of our generation. So it produced as much or it, it emitted as much lava, it effused as much lava in nine months uh, of 2014 and 2015 as 20 years of continuous eruption at Kilauea produced. So this thing is on a different scale of, of lava flow than we see on, you know, in a daily, in a daily sense of you know, the, the lava flows that are flowing on, on Earth regularly. I'm not saying that very well, but um, perhaps you can think about that. But the Wow, I didn't, I didn't realize it was that much more. Yeah, so it put out, uh, Holofrun erupted one and a half cubic kilometers from the last day of August 2014, and it stopped erupting before March 1st, 2015. So a cubic, uh, a, a cubic kilometer and a half is just a massive amount of, of Lava. It's enough to like the size of the Holofrun lava flow goes all the way from downtown DC out to uh, the Beltway and beyond. So it would this lava flow, if it came out of the White House, it would cover my house here in College Park, and it would it would reach uh, Goddard Space Flight Center. So you can look it up on a map, see how large that is. But it's it's really massive. So we go to study it because when we go to the when we look at lava flows on the moon and we look at lava flows on Mars, we also see extremely large lava flows that are 
10 times or even 100 times more voluminous than they are uh, on, on the earth when we study regular, you know, sort of quote unquote, run of the mill lava flows uh, from Kilauea. What would you say then, uh, you started to get at the idea of how volcanism is different between Earth and Mars. What are the sort of similarities and differences in volcanism on the two planets? The cool thing about uh, volcanoes from uh, all of the inner planets is that we have basaltic volcanism uh, coming out of, of all of these, at least in the ancient pasts of these planets, maybe in the in the present day. The um, amazing thing about Earth is that we've sort of transcended just basaltic volcanism. So uh, Iceland and Hawaii and uh, you know places like Flagstaff, they're putting out uh, basaltic uh, rock or basaltic lava or ash over time. But we're also we also live on this amazing planet which puts out other kinds of volcanic products like andesite and rhyolite, and we don't really see much evidence for, for these kinds of uh, rocks or these kinds of volcanism on, on other planets that we think of as you know, entirely basalt. So that makes us a really unique laboratory, a really unique planet. And for our listeners out there, why do we get solicited volcanism? Yeah, so you could probably explain it uh, as well or better than I can, but uh, there are a couple of different planetary crust types when uh, in, in planetary geology, we think that there are sort of three main evolutionary states of a planetary crust, at least that we know of. So when a planet first comes together, the entire surface of the planet will end up melting and, and forming a first primary crust. And that first primary crust is going to be very plagioclase rich. Um, you can see that when you look up at the moon at night and you see the bright spots, uh, those are um, primarily anorthosite rocks. So those are sort of the primary crust of, uh, of a planet. When the mantle of a planet starts to melt at the surface or at the, you know, at the, at the um, top of, that, of the mantle, in the upper mantle, and erupt out, then it will erupt, it'll start erupting basalts. And so that forms a secondary crust. And we see that on Earth in our ocean crusts. And we see that if you look again up at the moon, the dark spots, the eyes of the, the man and the moon are made up of this secondary crust. And then if you're able to recycle that secondary crust, which Earth does through plate tectonics, then you can start creating something called a tertiary crust. And this tertiary crust is further evolved away from uh, sort of a primordial mantle chemistry and uh, becomes uh, andesitic or becomes rhyolitic in nature. So it, it, constant, it gets rid of uh, some of the iron and magnesium and instead it concentrates in silica and uh, other incompatible elements. And that gives us a great, you know, uh, things like pegmatites where we can actually mine things on earth like lithium and uranium more easily than we probably can on, on other planets like the moon. It really blew my mind a long time ago when I learned that the man on the moon is in fact lava flows. I'll just say uh, that from doing, uh, leave this in or not, but when I do outreach, I've learned that the biggest thing that I can tell people is that the dark parts of the moon are lava. They're ancient lava. So it's not hot anymore, but um, these are you know, vast lava flows that were put down maybe 3 billion years ago, billion with a B. 
So um, if you can tell that to to anyone you see on the street in the future or, or tell it to somebody you're quarantined with, uh, it does a, a great world of good to say, look up the moon tonight look at the dark spots, they're lava. So when you're looking at these lava flows on the moon, uh, one of the questions that I get a lot is, uh, when was the last time there was any volcanic activity on the moon? What an interesting and uh, controversial question. So the there are these really interesting small areas on the moon called irregular mare patches or imps, I guess you can call them. Uh, Ina D is the biggest one. It's called Ina D because it's shaped like the letter D. And there's an ongoing debate about whether these things are only a couple hundred million years old, which would put them, you know, at the same age as, as the dinosaurs here on Earth. But uh, that's just very geologically recent for such a small planetary body like the moon. But some people think that they're in line with the other massive, uh, you know, um, Mare volcanoes, and so those those lava flows would have been deposited um, mostly around three and a half billion years ago. Uh, but that period of of large mare volcanism, the sort of black seas of lava that you see when you look up at the moon, that period of volcanism ended around one point two billion years ago. And we know this from counting craters on the surface. So you can come up with an estimate of a date of, uh, of a surface of a geological unit on the surface of another planet by counting the craters. The more craters, the older the uh, surface is just because it's been around longer and it's been able to be impacted more. Um, so we, we think, though, that um, yeah, 1.2 billion years is the end of most of the volcanism on the moon, but there are these really small pockets these really small regions on the moon that could have been active, uh, you know, as as recent as a hundred million years ago, which would be a real, uh, just a real foundational discovery if we're able to prove that these things are so recent. So, if if we set cryovolcanism, ice volcanism aside for a second, the two planetary bodies in the solar system that we know have active current active volcanism are Earth and Io. And then we get into what's the next most recent activity. Um, wh- where would you put it? We have, I know you've mentioned Mercury and Mars and Venus. Where, where is, what's the sort of time scale of where we think recent, the most recent volcanism has been on some of these other objects? Yeah. So like you said, Io and Earth are extremely volcanically active. So Janine can probably correct me, but I think there are something like 45 active volcanoes on the Earth right now. On Io, we have 100 volcanically active centers. And then on Venus, we just don't know how many active volcanic centers there are. There could be zero my guess is that it's not zero. And we have some evidence from recent missions to Venus, like Venus Express, that have been able to see that the surface, some surface patches of Venus are probably higher than the melting temperature of rock. And that tells us that there might be an active lava flow or a recent lava flow uh, in some of these places. And nicely enough, they're also in the areas that we see rifting on Venus. So we see these rifts on the surface of Venus, where we expect some volcanism. So it makes sense that these hot spots would be there. 
And then on Mars, now that we've sent a, a, a new geophysics, the first geophysics mission to Mars called NASA InSight, we put a, you know, the world's best seismometer down on the surface of Mars, and it's now telling us that there is active seismology on the surface of Mars. And that active, one of those active regions is a place called Cerberus Fosse, which is this giant crack in the ground that we think is formed from uh, a volcanic intrusion, perhaps. And there have been very recent, you know, just a couple of million year old lava flows that seem to emanate uh, or they're spatially um, adjacent to Cerberus Fosse. So Mars could still, Mars is certainly still geologically active. It could potentially still be um, magmatically active too in the, in the sh sort of shallow subsurface. And then I think Venus probably still does have active volcanism. We just haven't, haven't seen it with our own eyes yet. But if you were on Mars and you could watch something happen like that, um, what, would it, what would it look like? How would it be different than or similar to an eruption on Earth? So the difference between volcanism on Mars and on Earth is that because there's uh, less gravity on Mars, there's less of a, a buoyant force for the magma to actually ascend through the Martian crust. And what that ends up meaning is that small magma intrusions that might create a cinder cone here on Earth, those don't necessarily make it through to the surface before they cool down. And that means that when the heat does finally build up enough for magma to get to the surface, it'll generally be bigger, maybe three times bigger or 10 times bigger than uh, dikes than magma intrusions here on Earth are. And so the volcanoes, the volcanic eruptions are probably much larger, uh, generally speaking. And then once it does get to the surface, any gas that's in there meets an atmosphere that is you know, much lower pressure than Earth's. And so the fragmentation of the magma is actually much higher. So when you go to a cinder cone, uh, in the Western United States or in, in New Zealand, and you uh, you can pick up some of the cinder in your hand. It might be sort of gravelly. It might be have a gravel size or um, a sand size. On on Mars, those cinder cones would be much finer uh, particle sizes in the end. Um, and then also the the lava flows would be sort of different too. So when we look at lava flows on Mars, they're much longer than they are on the Earth. And we think that has to do with the fact that the crusts of the lava flows cool down much quicker um, on the uh, surface of Mars, and that might help insulate the inside, the core of the lava flow that helps it propagate downslope uh, farther. Cool. So it's sort of building a much uh, more quick building of some sort of lava tube system. Is that kind of what you're describing? Yeah, yeah. So you can think of it as a lava tube, and sometimes they're for sure lava tubes. So when we look at the surface of Mars, now we're looking at the surface, um, or you can also look at the surface of the moon. Uh, both of these places have, have really massive lava tube looking features. So they have similar morphologies to collapsed lava tubes, and sometimes they have similar morphologies to intact lava tubes. So there might be um, ridges along the the axes of of lava flows that we think are tubes, these conduit systems that were um, really insulating for the lava and just let the lava go for a thousand kilometers downhill. So 
On Earth, um, when we talk about big explosive eruptions, you're talking about the sort of fragmentation, the the production of explosive eruptions. On Earth, a big eruption might produce a plume that's 40, 50 kilometers tall. Um, Are they going to be different heights on different places like on Mars and on on Io? Yeah, that's a really good question. So uh, volcanic plumes are often you know, just as much about the atmosphere as they are about the uh, volcano itself. So as, as your students might know, uh, volcanic plumes start out with a sort of jet phase, and then they end up being um, buoyant by drawing in air from uh, the atmosphere. Um, maybe I'm explaining this wrong, actually. Um, but um, I stand by what I said about the atmosphere. So um, moving forward, so if we go to other planets, when you combine hot, gas-rich uh, plumes from volcanoes with uh, you know, a, a host planet's atmosphere, that interaction really drives what the plume might look like. So if you go to Venus, Venus already has an extraordinarily hot atmosphere. So a volcanic plume might not be that buoyant, and you might end up having a volcanic plume that's more of a boil over than a, a Plinian style eruption. If we go to uh, Io, where there's no atmosphere, then even a small volcano, a, a small volcanic eruption with some gas in it will create a plume that you can see from millions and millions of miles away from a, um, a satellite that's just passing by, like New Horizons. So we were able to see New Horizons was able to image uh, Io as it passed Jupiter, and it saw a really incredible eruption from the North Pole at a place called Tvashtar Terra. And that eruption, I think, um, the actual contribution of basalt from the eruption was as voluminous as maybe a VEI-2 eruption on Earth which would not necessarily make global news. But you can see this eruption uh, extending out you know, a, a tenth uh, or a fifth of the radius of, of Io just way into space. And it's just this incredible looking uh, shower of, of all sorts of um, SO2 and uh, and volcanic ash from, from Tavashtar Patera. So we're talking, that's hundreds of kilometers tall we're talking. Yes. So that's getting, yeah, that's, it's, it's incredible. Google it. You'll see a, a nice animated GIF, I think, of this um, really beautiful eruption plume. And because there's no atmosphere at all, it ends up being completely symmetrical, sort of like an umbrella. Um, but for some reason, if you look into it, uh, it, it is a little, um, I think the word is filamentous, or it, it creates these filaments. So it's not just a perfect blanket. It, um, there, there's something going on there that uh, scientists still need to work out. So where does Mars fall on this? Are we going to see eruption plumes on Mars that are bigger than on Earth on average? Yeah, not, not anymore, probably, just because um, the really big eruptions were probably in the in the distant past. So there's this really fun... Uh, anecdote where um, my boss, uh, Jake Bleacher, and my old boss, Jake Bleacher, uh, worked with um, another volcanologist, uh, Joe Michalski, and they found evidence for large sort of Yellowstone-like calderas, so these um, these very large calderas on, on Mars that are also very ancient and would have created super eruptions, um, 
which was the, you know, the going word, the going phrase, uh, back when they wrote the paper in 2012. So these really large eruptions might have helped fuel a the deposition of a bunch of ash on uh, on parts of Mars and also uh, fuel the fuel a nice atmosphere for maybe potentially critters to live. But when they published this, the journal Nature actually made this the the journal uh, cover and that was really great, but the artist sort of made this giant plume that extended way out into Mars space. Um, and if, if that was the size of the plume, then I think Phobos would have actually, uh, hit, hit the plume. Wow. Um, so you, you won't expect that. I think that the, the atmosphere of Mars is thin enough that you won't necessarily be able to sustain a plume. But I think that this is, uh, an open area for inquiry. Uh, and if, you're really interested in where plumes go or how tall plumes can get, then um, Laura Kerber is somebody who has some really accessible work uh, you can look into further for that. So you mentioned this idea of comparing the the calderas to Yellowstone. Um, I would imagine in terms of composition, you know, Yellowstone's happily erupting a pile of rhyolite, and we're talking about the silicic volcanism. We're not talking about the same type of silicic volcanism on Mars. Correct. So what's what's driving the big calderas? Yeah, so we have some of the so some of the biggest calderas on in the solar system are found on Mars. One of them is this nice basaltic caldera and in a place called Arceomons that I know and love. And that caldera is um 110 kilometers in diameter, and it's a perfect circle. It's it's incredible. Uh, now, when I say basaltic caldera, what I'm kind of referring to is more than just a chemistry. It, it probably formed from just collapse as there was some lava draining out the side of this very massive shield volcano on Mars. But these other purported volcanoes that, that Jake Bleacher and Joe Michalski found uh, would have been probably basaltic, but also would have been explosive. And they would have put down basalt ash, um, you know, over a, a region of maybe the quarter of, of the surface of Mars and uh, called Arabia Terra. So these, um, these volcanoes, how they're explosive um, has something to do with a volatile story, I'm sure, but I'm not sure if that... Um, if that if the way that magmatic system ends up being super explosive is completely worked out, though there are certainly explosive examples in history of of basaltic uh, volcanic systems on Earth, especially Kilauea. Not likely to be silicic activity, right? Yeah, I think that most, if not all, of the volcanoes that we see on on Mars and even on other planets are all going to be basaltic, and I think. There are there is some speculation that maybe the caps of uh, or or maybe the magma chambers inside of uh, volcanoes as large as Olympus Mons might be uh, a little closer to andesitic. But uh, this is you know, when we look at the chemistry, we really see uh, basalt everywhere on Mars. So one of my favorite features in the solar system are those pancake domes that they have on yes. Venus. And they they are reminiscent of things like the big obsidian flow in uh, Newberry Caldera or Glass Mountain at Medicine Lake. But they aren't, again, you don't think they're necessarily silicic features. Right. I mean, we're, um, 
you've hit the nail on the head. We're actually planning, if we're able to, in September to go to Glass Mountain in Medicine Lake to do a direct comparison between it and uh, the pancake domes of Venus uh, and other uh, volcanic landforms. So uh, we also have we have sort of effusive domes around the solar system and in places you might not expect. So there are these beautiful pancake domes on, on Venus, but there's also a couple of domes on Europa. One of them is called the Mitten, and how that formed this sort of smooth domed deposit that might be you know, lava, except for instead of lava, it's you know water. So it's sort of cryolava. Um, how these things formed, uh, isn't necessarily tied to composition, but tied to viscosity. Another example of this uh, is Ahunamans uh, on Ceres, right? And Ahunamans is potentially also this sort of cryovolcanic dome, which is uh, filled up, you know, like a, a, a self-sustaining bladder. So to understand how these things formed, one of our one of my colleagues, Lene Quick, does this really incredible uh, physics modeling uh, to to demonstrate these things sort of build up and then and and collapse at the same time. Uh, and so it doesn't necessarily have to do again with the chemistry, but the viscosity that uh, is driven by both the chemistry and the temperature of the magma and the environment that surrounds it. Mentioned um, cryovolcanism. So that seems like a a segue we can head into. I mean, off the top of my head, I can think of at least, what, maybe six places that we think that there's cryovolcanism, places like Europa and Enceladus and Ceres, and maybe places like Triton, well, definitely on Triton, uh, maybe Pluto, Titan. What's, What's the sort of um, how does cryovolcanism fit into the the realm of volcanism? Because we're talking about now water behaving in the role that we think of for molten rock. I think that what it's doing for us is it's expanding our understanding or our, our imagination when it comes to volcanism. And it definitely has different characteristics than uh, volcanoes on on earth and terrestrial volcanoes generally. Yeah. And so in many ways, the physical process here is the same where you have uh, uh, pockets of liquid going through country rock made out of solid material. And the chemistry of that or the the makeup of that, the composition of that isn't necessarily um, that important to to what's happening. So the the water surrounded by ice for some reason wants to advect up to the surface of these planets, which is sort of a mystery because ice, as we know, is buoyant, more buoyant than water, and it floats uh, in our glass of water. But there's still some uh, ability for this water to advect at least close to the surface. And then it generally uh, sort of comes out in a you know, potentially in a mildly explosive way. So we see evidence of this when Cassini flew around nearby Enceladus. Uh, We see these really beautiful plumes coming out of the tiger stripes at the uh, south pole of Enceladus. And now we've seen similar plumes come out from Europa, thanks to the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, So water probably can't flow very easily on these planets because without uh, an environment, they just want to evaporate. Uh, But because they might fragment into small particles of ice, 
that allows them to make a sort of explosive eruption out into space. So the explosive eruptions on Earth are largely driven by rapidly expanding and basically exploding gas, plus the speed at which the magma is coming out. So what is actually driving the fragmentation or the exploding of the ice and cryovolcanism? Yeah, so from a basic standpoint, it's still this gas. It, the water might act as both its own you know, volatile source and the, and the melt part of the magma. So as it comes up to towards the surface, it suddenly doesn't want to be liquid anymore. It wants to either be frozen uh, ice or it wants to be gas. And so, you know, part, different parts of the magma chamber might make different uh, decisions, I guess you could say. Uh, as to what they do. So the, the water ends up expanding and fragmenting like uh, a gas, and then the parts that freeze end up being sort of the snow that uh, ends up being this, the, the fragmented crystals that come out. I think, I mean, at the same time, uh, again, if you really want to talk about cryovolcanism, it would probably be better to, to get like a, a dedicated expert on this. We're just looking for the sampler plate of cryovolcanism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, this is definitely yes. a sampler. So it seems like, at least in our solar system, volcanism is pretty common. I would imagine that there's interest in understanding how common it is outside of our solar system, because in many ways, at least on Earth, volcanism and life are can potentially be linked in one form or another, or volcanism and tectonics and tectonics might be linked to life in, in one form or another. Is there, um, do you know of any sort of work people are doing on looking for evidence of active volcanism on planets outside our solar system? Yeah, that's a really good question. So this exoplanet uh, world or this exoplanet uh, science community is really starting to um, blossom and they're really starting to look now at signs of, of volcanism. And that's really going to become a reality when James Webb Space Telescope actually launches and is able to start seeing with much clearer vision of what's happening with, with these exoplanets. And I'll explain a little bit about that. So uh, one of the best cases for um, exovolcanism, you could call it, would be the planet 55 Cancri E. So 55 Cancri E is this really close-in planet that's orbiting its star, and it uh, orbits um, you know, much faster on, a, on periods of days around its star as opposed to, say, a really far-out distant planet from its star like Mercury, which takes 88 full days. Like, why are we so slow here in the solar system? <laughs> so this planet, um, when you look at the temperature of... 55 Cancri E, the surface temperature that comes back from, from models is one that is uh, super solidus, maybe even super liquidus. So if for, for silicate volcanism. So um, there are hypotheses out there that the solar side uh, of 55 Cancri E is just a stable, maybe 100 meter thick magma ocean. And then the far side of 55 Cancri E, no one knows what's going on there. Does it have a sort of atmosphere shaped sort of like a mullet where there's a ton of atmosphere in the back? Um, 
is there active deposition from the magma ocean going on on the far side where it sort of falls down like ejecta from maybe a, a large impact? Uh, I mean, all of these things are big open questions for planets like, like that. Um, but one of the ways that we're going to be able to test this comes from um, uh, this idea that if we look at just the atmospheres of these exoplanets, which we can do as they cross in front or behind their, their um, home stars, their host stars, we can start seeing um, differences over time in their atmospheres. And that might mean that, you know, we were seeing a, a volcanic plume in one orbit and then the next orbit that plume has disappeared and we would see that as an observation from a, a telescope like james webb space telescope so there you'd be looking for changes in things like maybe the sulfur content of those atmospheres right so just we're we're starting i think to make baby steps so the baby step is just to see is there a difference in uh how bright a or how opaque an atmosphere is. And if there's differences over time, then that's the first step in evidence for um, active, you know, explosive volcanism. If we then look at how opaque or uh, bright it is in different wavelengths, then we can start to answer questions like that, Eric, where we're asking, what's the composition? Is this, is this SO2? Is this, um, is this water? Or is this something that is extraordinarily hot because these planets are so close to their suns, you know, just molten, um, like molten uh, sodium. The floor is lava? Yeah, at this point, like the floor is lava for the lava. It's so hot that the lava is starting to evaporate off of the surface of some of these planets. The sort of gaseous phase of lava is a little... Uh... <laughs> A little startling. Yeah, it's pretty hard to wrap my mind around it as a as a person who goes onto the field and looks at basalt volcanoes all the time for an exoplanet expert to come and ask me, so what happens to these volcanoes when the silica starts evaporating? And I don't necessarily know how to, how to answer that, but that's something that we're starting to think about when we're thinking about these processes, uh, volcanic processes for really uh, close to the star planets. And, um, so it's, it's a definitely new world. And one of the nice things about the cryovolcanism is, you know, the volcanic, uh, what is it? The volcanic material is also not stable and it wants to sublimate. And so that makes, uh, places like Enceladus maybe even more of an analog to, to some of these planets. So being someone who works, uh, for NASA, and works in this sort of realm of planetary uh, planetary exploration and planetary um, geology. You know, a lot of people tend to think of this as being the realm of astronomers rather than geologists. Um, what, what do you have to say about wh where we lie right now in terms of um, the astronomy and geology and where planetary science is, is going at this point, because I know that I've, I've heard some arguments about we're now entering the realm where it, it's, it's geologists who have enough data now to work with, to be, to do this sort of uh, exo geology as it were. I think that you are really right on the, on the money there. Um, I think that one of the things that we do as you know, uh, that, that NASA does and that ESA does 
and space programs do is they turn points into places. I think Carl Sagan might have said that or something similar. So we're turning these um, you know, points of light like Pluto that when I was growing up, I had a picture of Pluto on my wall and it was a two-tone sort of orange and black blob. And now we have extremely this extremely immaculate picture of what the surface of Pluto looks like. And it enables geology when before the only people who could study Pluto for uh, a large part were people who were geologists who were really interested in modeling and, um, and astronomers, like you said. And when I was sort of growing up in college or when I was, when I was going through college and I learned about planetary, I realized, Oh no, I'm, I'm really hosed because I'm just a geologist. And really in order to do this as a profession, I need to be a physicist or I need to be an astronomer. I need to be a smart person. And what I learned is that I don't need to be any of those things. Um, geologists are really needed to understand uh, processes that are on these planets, especially because the, the main directive of NASA is to understand, are we alone in the universe? Is there life out there? And so all of the questions that we ask ourselves here at, at NASA Goddard um, in, a, in the planetary side are trying to answer that question in some indirect way or another. And life really relies on geology. And that's where we sort of fit into this idea of, of being part of the space program. Janine, do you have any other questions that you'd want to ask? Yeah, um, a very, very important question. What is your favorite planetary volcano that's not on Earth? The, my favorite planetary volcano that's not on Earth? Oh, my God, I, I hate that question. No. And, and why? Oh. Um, <laughs> Pressure is on. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, oh, no, 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 no. It's like choosing between my babies. So I think that they're okay. So so I will say that there are a couple of really beautiful cinder cones uh, in a place called the Tharsis Rise on Mars that I um, have looked at for like ten years now, and I've just worked with a colleague of mine to actually image those with high rise with a high rise camera. And so those are sort of my pet volcanoes where I look at them all the time, and I'm just fascinated because. They're so smooth and they have virtually no craters on them. So they must be very young. Um, and then if I can go to a whole planet, then I would just say that um, uh, Janine, your group has 1,500 volcanoes, I think, in the, in the Holocene record of, of um, volcanism on Earth. But if we go to a place like Venus, it has volcanic clusters that have over 10,000 volcanoes just in a single cluster. Um, and so that's just it. So it makes me, um, if I can plug one, uh, Twitter handle, it would be that there's a, uh, Magellan, a Venus Magellan bot out there that just puts out pictures of, um, the surface of Venus on a regular basis. And that Venus Magellan bot has, um, pictures of volcanoes in like the majority of, of these, uh, surface pictures. And they're just, just incredibly beautiful. Um, volcanic terrains. I am going to go find that. Yeah, you definitely should. I'd have to say that I th I'm 
fairly confident that I do follow that because I too am just like amazed by the um, the volcanic features on the surface of Venus. Uh, you know, I I have no leg to stand on other than my my hunch that Venus is a volcanically active body as well. It's just you're right. It's hard to actually see or see the evidence of any of that activity very clearly. It's not like we see a big plume or anything like that, although I guess there's been some evidence of changing concentrations of various gases in the atmosphere that could be volcanically related. But yeah, Venus, I feel like, is one of those planets that that sorely needs attention, although doing anything in the atmosphere on the surface is just so darn hard. The really cool thing about um, Venus is, so um, if taking half a step back, so yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I think that we have a couple of legs to stand on to say that there is active volcanism on Venus, but an extraordinary claim requires extraordinary evidence. And so on the surface of Venus, in order to say that we definitely have active volcanoes on Venus, we see um, pieces of evidence so far that that link Venus to being volcanically active, but we haven't necessarily tied all of those uh, threads of evidence together to say for sure, yes, this one volcano is definitely active and it was active for a period of 10 days, two months ago. We haven't done that yet. But what's really exciting is now NASA is uh, working through a selection for its its newest discovery mission or two. And two of the four potential missions that it will send to another planet uh, include uh, Venus missions. So there's Da Vinci, which would actually, or Da Vinci Plus, it's called, which is a mission that would land on Venus uh, and on its way down, it would collect all of its science and it would be, um, it would take images and uh, take uh, atmospheric readings during its descent. And the other is called Veritas, and Veritas would uh, provide a new, updated global map of Venus, which is desperately needed of the surface. Cool. Yeah, no, Venus, I think it's it's going to be, I, I get the impression that the choice uh, during that phase of uh, mission selection is going to be challenging because um, is that the same set of missions that proposed missions that has the, the Dragonfly as well for Titan? Uh, so Dragonfly, I believe, was a uh, New Frontiers proposal. So there are two, there are a couple of different mission um levels. So there's discovery, which is sort of the budget mission, uh, where everything has to be fit into, um, I think, $650 million from, uh, you know, soup to nuts to actual launch. Um, And then uh, New Frontiers has a little bit more money to do more extraordinary science. And uh, that has Dragonfly. Uh, And then we have even larger missions like flagship missions like James Webb Space Telescope and Cassini. That um, that are that really profoundly change the science that humans are have access to for the solar system. All right, so we can send something to Venus and something to Titan, and then we're all happy. At least I'm happy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so that's yeah. So we we do get to choose a couple of things, um, but the nice um, what is it? No matter where we go uh, with this next discover uh, discovery mission. Uh, we'll go to a place with volcanoes. So another candidate for that is the IO Volcano Observatory. So that's um, IVO. Um, And I think that the other one would go to uh, Triton, which has been seen um, 
you know, which is sort of a, a Pluto-like world that has had active plumes um, imaged by you know, Voyager 2. Yeah, I think I remember, now that you mentioned that, I recall that when they announced these finalists for the Discovery missions that I made some note on Twitter that they were all volcanically potentially volcanically active areas. So I was excited about that. So yes, volcanoes are getting their their right place in the NASA exploration mission here. Yeah, I mean, it's important. Like you said earlier, life, pro- like I think life requires volcanoes. It requires water, it requires atmosphere, it requires volcanoes. So I think we're, we're pretty much running out of time here. Is there anything else you'd like to add uh, about what you're doing or anything for you know some of the our listeners before we wrap up? Uh, no, I think we hit a lot of the targets. Um, I just wanted, I thought that I might mention uh, a little bit about my um, education since you are uh, at, a, at a small liberal arts college in Ohio. Um, you know, I grew up just north of Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I went to sort of a local college, uh, Eastern Michigan University. And what was really great about that university was it was all undergrads. Um, maybe there were a couple of master's students, but that was really enabling to me to be able to um, be able to get undergraduate research, and that helped me get into grad school. And uh, it, you know, these these um, places that don't necessarily have PhDs uh, available for geologists there. And um, when I first started going to college uh, conferences, everyone also sort of had this uh, same feeling where everyone would say, oh, I'm not from a real geology department. There are only three professors there. And I was from one of these small, you know, geology departments. And as it turns out, we get, uh, you know, geology departments around the country, no matter what the size, um, seem to give really phenomenal educations. Thanks for coming on and answering our questions. If people would like to follow you on Twitter to find out more, um, I think you said you can be found at Jacob Richardson, all one word on Twitter. Yeah, thanks. Janine, do you have anything else uh, you'd like to end with, with today? Uh, just the usual. I hope you know, the listener is doing okay. We're on anywhere between week four or eight right now. So I hope everyone's doing okay with the pandemic out there. And I hope that this helps. Yeah, I hope so too. We're all uh, making it through. At least uh, we're heading into spring now, at least on the Northern Hemisphere here. And uh, I know at least the sunshine is helping me feel feel mentally better. So that's a good thing, I think, for a lot of us. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening to another episode of Popular Volcanics. Uh, if you have any other questions or comments, feel free to send us a tweet at Pop Volcanics or check out the links from this episode over at Popular Volcanics com. I'll have a bunch of uh, links to some of the things like the Magellan bot. We will likely be back, maybe not next week, but at least in the next few weeks with a new episode. So until then, I hope uh, you stay well. And